Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Terry from Texas with Terry's Mysterious Moments. I think it's a shame that some people who have an interest, whether it be a fleeting one, or a dabbling curiosity or a serious interest in the paranormal are sometimes so gullible that they can be hoodwinked into believing or accepting even the most outlandish story. Hoaxes run rampant in the field of the paranormal as in any field of interest, medicine, finance, religion, etc. And many are so minor as to cause no harm, no foul. But some can really cause problems when they bring havoc to the believers' lives. And I guess that's the important word there, believers. Some notable hoaxes, in my opinion, in the realm of the paranormal would include the three Fox sisters in Hydesville, New York in the late 1840s, early 1850s. The Cottingley Fairy Pictures from England, the Amityville Horror Story, and now the Dibbett Box Story. In 2003, Portland, Oregon writer and furniture refinishing business owner Kevin Manis purchased the cabinet from the yard sale of a local attorney and began creating a backstory. Manis's eBay auction description included a story claiming the cabinet was previously owned by a survivor of the Holocaust in Poland who said it contained the malicious spirit of a Dybbuk and that the box had paranormal powers and was responsible for his bad luck and nightmares. Subsequent owners retold Manus's story when reselling the item and amplified it with their own claims of strange phenomena. The Dybbuk box is a wine cabinet, better described as a portable mini bar by one reviewer, claimed to be haunted by a Dybbuk, which is from Jewish mythology and is a malevolent wandering spirit that enters and possesses the body of a living person until exorcised. The box gained notoriety 
when it was auctioned on eBay by owner Kevin Manis, who created a story featuring Jewish Holocaust survivors and paranormal claims as part of his eBay item description. Manis' story was the, albeit misguided, inspiration for the 2012 horror film, The Possession. According to Manis, the carving in the back of it is my carving. The stone that was in the box is something that is a signature creation of mine also. Make no mistake, I conceived of the Dybbuk box, the name, the term, the idea, and wrote this creative story about it to post on eBay. One owner, Jason Haxton, director of the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine in Kirksville, Missouri, launched a website that consolidated claims about the cabinet called dibbuckbox.com that reportedly received hundreds of thousands of hits and created what has been described as an internet legend. In 2004, Haxton sold the rights to the story to a Hollywood production company. The subsequent film, The Possession, produced by Sam Raimi, was released in 2012. Haxton later gave the cabinet to Ghost Adventures star Zach Bagans to display in his museum. In 2018, rapper Post Malone claimed the spate of bad luck was caused by his contact with the cabinet. According to author Alan S. Mott, we embrace such stories because they tap into our own fears and prejudices. Mott said the story taps into our belief that out in the world, there is a supernatural evil that will attack anyone regardless of how good they are. They allow people to make some sense of a chaotic world. Folklorist John Harold Brunvand noted that the story features a supernatural angle and first-person narrative, a variation on typical urban legends. Cal State anthropology professor and folklore specialist Elliot Oring criticized claims about the cabinet, saying, go through the story and you will see areas that seem to require suspending critical functions. Arizona minister and author Reverend Jim Willis opined that the story was most likely a very elaborate hoax, but that his opinion takes all the fun away from the popular urban legend. Chris French, head of the Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths College, said the box's owners were already primed to be looking out for bad stuff. If you believe you've been cursed, Inevitably, you explain the bad stuff that happens in terms of what you perceive to be the cause. Put it like this, I would be happy to own this object. In 2014, skeptical author Brian Dunning investigated the Dippet Box legend and determined that the whole idea of the box being inhabited by a Dibbuk is nonsensical, according to what a Dibbuk is supposed to be. The Encyclopedia Mythica describes it as a disembodied spirit possessing a living body that belongs to another soul and usually talks from that person's mouth. 
An important 1914 Yiddish play, The Dybbuk, was about the spirit of a dead man who possessed the living body of the woman he loved and had to be exorcised. Nowhere in the folkloric literature is there precedent for a Dybbuk inhabiting a box or another inanimate object. In his Closer Look column in Skeptical Inquirer Online in January 2019, investigator Kenny Biddle reviewed the Dybbuk box he found on display in Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum in Las Vegas. His conclusion, following careful investigation of the cabinet's construction and history, was, despite what various owners would have us think, the infamous Dybbuk box is not a haunted Jewish wine cabinet from Spain, but instead a mini bar from New York. Biddle also wrote that he believes Manus created the Dybbuk box story from whole cloth and that this elaborate story that started the entire legend was not an account of real supernatural events, but instead a fictional backstory he came up with to sell an ordinary and incomplete minibar. Biddle's claim of the box and its legend being fraudulent is backed up by a screen capture of a Facebook post made by the originator of the legend, Kevin Manis, to the Haunt Me page. The post, dated October 24, 2015, states, I am the original creator of the story of the Dybbuk box, which appeared as one of my eBay posts back in 2003. How about this? If you or anyone else can find any reference to a, a Dybbuk box anywhere in history prior to my eBay post, I'll pay you $100,000 and tattoo your name on my forehead. Manis later admitted to writer Charles Moss that the box was his own creation and that he added more elements to the Dybbuk box story over the years to help evolve it to keep it relevant and interesting. To my mind, the entire Dybbuk box episode is an example of a form of mass hysteria at best. It was originally purchased for a nefarious purpose, sold with a false backstory, and passed along to gullible people who equated all their bad luck to it. Easy to say now, but I felt a tugging on my leg from the first time I heard the story of the Dybbuk box. I felt it just wasn't real, and now I've been proven correct. It was a hoax. Not that my personal opinion carried any weight in regard to this item. But anyway. On March 29th, 1974, a group of farmers, six brothers and a neighbor, were digging a well a little less than a mile east of the Quinn Emperor's tomb mound at Mount Lee, a region riddled with underground springs and watercourses. For centuries, occasional reports mentioned pieces of terracotta figures and fragments of the Quinn Necropolis roofing tiles, 
bricks and chunks of masonry being found. This discovery by the seven men prompted Chinese archaeologists to investigate, revealing the largest pottery figurine group ever found. The Terracotta Army is a collection of terracotta sculptures depicting the armies of the first emperor of China. It is a form of funerary art buried with the emperor, buried with the emperor in 209 BC with the purpose of protecting the emperor in his afterlife. The figures dating from approximately the late 3rd century BC. The figures vary in height according to their roles, the tallest being generals. The figures include warriors, chariots, and horses. Estimates from 2007 were that the three pits containing the terracotta army held more than 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots with 520 horses and 150 cavalry horses, the majority of which remained buried in the pits near the emperor's mausoleum. Other terracotta non-military figures were found in other pits, including officials, acrobats, strongmen, and musicians. A museum complex has since been constructed over the area, the largest pit being enclosed by a roofed structure. The terracotta army is a part of a much larger necropolis. Ground penetrating radar and core sampling have measured the area to be approximately 38 square miles. The necropolis was constructed as a microcosm of the emperor's imperial palace or compound and covers a large area around the tomb mound of the first emperor. The earthen tomb mound is located at the foot of Mount Li and built in a pyramidal shape and is surrounded by two solidly built rammed earth walls with gateway entrances. The necropolis consists of several offices, halls, stables, and other structures as well as an imperial park placed around the tomb mound. The warriors stand guard to the east of the tomb. Up to 16 feet of reddish sandy soil had accumulated over the site in the two millennia following its construction, but archaeologists found evidence of earlier disturbances at the site. During the excavations near the Mount Lee burial mound, archaeologists found several graves dating from the 18th and 19th centuries where diggers had apparently struck terracotta fragments. These were discarded as worthless and used along with soil to backfill the excavations. The tomb appears to be a hermetically sealed space roughly the size of a soccer pitch. The tomb remains unopened, possibly due to concerns over preservation of its artifacts. For example, after the excavation of the terracotta army, the painted surface present on some terracotta figures began to flake and fade. The lacquer covering the paint can curl in 15 seconds once exposed to Sean's dry air and can flake off in just four minutes. Four main pits approximately 23 feet deep have been excavated. These are located approximately 
a mile east of the burial mound. The soldiers within were laid out as if to protect the tomb from the east. The Quinj emperors conquered states lay. Pit 1, which is 750 feet long and 203 feet wide, contains the main army of more than 6,000 figures. Pit 1 has 11 corridors, most more than 10 feet wide and paved with small bricks and a wooden ceiling supported by large beams and posts. This design was also used for the tombs of nobles and would have resembled palace hallways when built. The wooden ceilings were covered with reed mats and layers of clay for waterproofing, then mounded with more soil, raising them to about 6 foot 7 inches to 9 foot 10 inches above the surrounding ground level when completed. Pit 2 has cavalry and infantry units as well as war chariots and is thought to represent a military guard. Pit 3 is the command post with high-ranking officers and a war chariot. Pit 4 is empty, perhaps left unfinished by its builders. Some of the figures in pits 1 and 2 show fire damage, while remains of burnt ceiling rafters have also been found. These, together with missing weapons, have been taken as evidence of reported lootings by Shang Yu and the subsequent burning of the site, which is thought to have caused the roof to collapse and crush the army figures below. The terracotta figures currently on display have been restored from the fragments. Other pits that form the necropolis have also been excavated. These pits lie within and outside the walls surrounding the tomb mound. They variously contain bronze carriages, terracotta figures of entertainers such as acrobats and strongmen, officials, stone armor suits, burial sites of horses, rare animals, and laborers, as well as bronze cranes and ducks set in an underground park. The terracotta figures are life-sized, typically ranging from 5.74 feet to about 6.6 feet. The officers are typically taller, and they vary in height, uniform, hairstyle in accordance with rank. Their faces appear to be different for each individual figure. Scholars, however, have identified 10 basic face shapes the figures are of these general types, armored infantry, unarmored infantry, cavalrymen who wear a pillbox hat, helmeted drivers of chariots with more armor protection, spear-carrying charioteers, kneeling crossbowmen or archers who are armored, standing archers who are not, as well as generals and other low-ranking officers. There are, however, many variations in the uniforms within the ranks. For example, some may wear shin pads while others may not. They may either wear long or short trousers, some of which may be padded, and their body armors vary depending on rank, function, and position and formation. There are also terracotta horses placed among the warrior figures. Originally, the figures were painted with ground precious stones, intensely fired bones for white, 
pigments of iron oxide, dark red, cinnabar, red, malachite, green, azurite, blue, charcoal, black, cinnabar, barium, copper, silicate mixed, which is Chinese purple or Han purple, tree sap from a nearby source, more than likely from the Chinese lacquer tree, which is brown, and other colors including pink, lilac, red, white, and one unidentified color. The colored lacquer finish and individual facial features would have given the features a realistic feel with eyebrows and facial hair in black and the faces done in pink. Some scholars have speculated a possible Hellenistic link to these structures because of the lack of life-sized and realistic sculptures before the Quinn dynasty. They argued that potential Greek influence is particularly evident in some terracotta figures, such as those of acrobats, combined with rare bronze artifacts made with a lost wax technique known in Greece and Egypt. However, this idea is disputed by scholars who claim that there is no substantial evidence at all for contact between ancient Greeks and Chinese builders of the tomb. And the bases of such speculation are offered imprecise or false interpretation of source materials or just far-fetched conjectures. They argue that such speculations rest on flawed and old Eurocentric ideas that assumed other civilizations were incapable of sophisticated artistry and thus foreign artistry must be seen through Western traditions. The terracotta army figures were manufactured in workshops by government laborers and local craftsmen using local materials. Heads, arms, legs, and torsos were created separately, then assembled by looting the pieces together. In pottery, looting is a technique for joining pieces of unfired leather hard clay together using a wet clay slip or slurry as an adhesive. The complete object is then fired. Large objects are often built up this way. For example, the figures of the terracotta army. When completed, the terracotta figures were placed in the pits in precise military formation according to rank and duty. The faces were created using molds and at least 10 face molds may have been used. Clay was then added after assembly to provide individual facial features to make each figure appear different. It's believed that the warrior's legs were made in such a way that terracotta drainage pipes were manufactured at the time. This would classify the process as assembly line production with specific parts manufactured and assembled after being fired as opposed to crafting a figure as one solid piece and subsequently firing it. In those times of tight imperial control, each workshop was required to inscribe its name on items produced to ensure quality control. This has aided modern historians in verifying which workshops were commandeered to make tiles and other mundane items for the terracotta army. Most of the figures originally held real weapons which would have increased their realism. 
The majority of these weapons, though, were looted shortly after the creation of the army or have rotted away. Despite this, over 40,000 bronze items of weaponry have been recovered, including swords, daggers, spears, lances, battle axes, scimitars, shields, crossbows, and crossbow triggers. Most of the recovered items are arrowheads, which are usually found in bundles of 100 units. Studies of these arrowheads suggest they were produced by self-sufficient autonomous workshops using a process referred to as cellular production or toyotism. Some weapons were coated with a 10 to 15 micro layer of chromium dioxide before burial that was believed to have protected them from any form of decay for the last 2,200 years. However, research in 2019 indicated that the chromium was merely contamination from nearby lacquer, not a means of protecting the weapons. The slightly alkaline pH and small particle size of the burial soil most likely preserve the weapons. The swords contain an alloy of copper, tin, and other elements including nickel, magnesium, and cobalt. Some carry inscriptions that date their manufacture to between 245 and 228 BC, indicating they were used before burial. Much research goes on regarding the warriors, the weapons found with them, and the tomb of the emperor. New findings come along almost daily. Maybe someday soon we'll have an answer for the main question, why? Why were they made? Perhaps all will be revealed. Finally, I want to add a short story about a friend of mine. She was a fellow churchgoer and she passed away about five years ago or so. And in our belief system, I know that when she hit the floor in her house, she was no longer there. There was no residual. She was already in heaven. Several of us, several of us people that knew her well, were at her viewing, or not viewing because it was closed casket, but we were there at the funeral home. We were talking, uh, sharing tales about this lady and things that had happened uh, with her and around her. And we had been there for a couple of hours and nothing strange had happened. But I was telling a story about this lady and suddenly the curtain at the head of the coffin which I would uh, suppose was an open door to the outside, the curtain billowed in like someone was coming through. And it's, it sat there and swung for several minutes after that while we were telling these stories. And I was the only one that saw this. So did my friend make an appearance at her own wake? Uh, I don't know. It was interesting, though. Strange things do happen. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride.
I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular. No particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments. Or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.